0: stand out from the crowd? Are
1: you looking
2: for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you. That civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the
1: law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by co-host Patrick Green. And we're back again to discuss the Blade Runner theatrical cut part two. I was having some confusion about that title a little earlier, just because we do, between me and Patrick, we do six podcasts. No joke. <laughs> that's um.
0: a lot, and, and to be fair, Ridley Scott is is associated with like at least a third of those podcasts, so it can get True. confusing. Uh,
1: so it was a really exciting conversation that we had the first time. I knew it would be. Um, there's a lot to talk about, and we have a couple of guests on the show today, and I'll let Patrick introduce them.
0: Yeah. So first up, we have Peter, who has been on multiple times. He's a longtime listener and uh, and a great dude, and we're so excited to have him back. So welcome back, Peter. Thanks. Very psyched to be here. Can't wait. And we also have a first-time guest who I will um, kind of turn the floor over to in a moment. Um, this is Steve uh, from Australia. And uh, Steve and I know each other through being members of a uh, of racing fandom. We're both Formula One guys. And uh, we have had many interesting di- divergences and in conversation over the last couple of years into Blade Runner. And um, and I've been trying to get him on a show for a long time. And, uh, and I think this is a great opportunity for that. So Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself, your association with Blade Runner, and thanks for coming on.
2: Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, My association with Blade Runner. Well, I've been a Philip K. Dick fan since the early 1960s, which, if you know how to do any maths, means I'm a fair bit older than you guys. Um, I must have been about eight or nine when I first started reading, you know, the pulp science fiction magazines that came out in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, astounding stories and science fiction, fantasy and those things, to which Philip Dick was... uh, a contributor lots of times. In fact, in some magazines, he would contribute two stories because he needed the money, apparently. So I grew up reading his stories in those magazines and then when he began publishing longer form um, novels and things um, like Man in the High Castle in 64, I started reading those. So I read, you know, I was was a fan from an early age. Um, When the book I first read uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1970. It was about 1970 by the time I got down here. Um, And by the time the movie had come out, I had read the book four or five times, I suppose. Uh, And I work in the film and television business. So uh, I was a big reader of American Cinematographer in those days. And as the movie was coming out, they dedicated a couple of issues to, you know, big, long, full-length expositions about the production. So when the movie came out, um, I knew a little about it, uh, had seen some production stills and read some of the the production stories. Obviously, they don't give out, you know, plot details and that sort of thing. Um, but you could, I picked up from what was being written that, there had been some changes made to the the storyline, uh, and I was I wondered about that. Anyway, came out here in um, down here in December 1982, and I lined up like everybody else for hours. I wanted to be the first to see it, and I went in, watched the movie, and I've got to say, at this stage, I was blown away by the photography. Um, Cronenworth just you know, blew my head off. And the art direction and um, the production design by David Schneider and Lawrence Paul was just mind-blowingly good. But I walked out of the movie theatre angry. And it was like, you know, what the hell have I just seen? Because apart from a couple of points of convergence, the film was not representative of the book at all. Um, there were large swathes of the book that were just cut out, ignored. And they were parts of the book that intrigued me um, and built up, you know, the three-dimensional character of Deckard. Uh, and so I've walked away from there quite angry and disturbed. But I went home and immediately read the book again and then went back and saw the movie twice more in the next couple of weeks. And it took those three viewings and um, a whole bunch of, you know, hard thinking on my behalf. And as I said in the notes that I put up, a whole lot of attitude adjustment before I could finally come to terms with what basically Scott Fancher and where people had done to the story. It wasn't the story that, you know, I'd fallen in love with, but it was a good story. Now I've had to kind of resolve that by, I now think of them as two separate things. The book, And the movie, uh, they inhabit the same universe. It's a bit like what you guys did with the 2020 Gethsemane Project, which I really love, by the way. I think that's just brilliant. Um, The book and the movie inhabit the Blade Runner universe, but they are different things to me, and I have to kind of keep them as different things. They tell different parts of the story. They're probably, you know, temporally kind of... um, contemporaneous um, happen about the same time, but they they are two separate things and and they're not necessarily joined together. So, as long as I can live with that, I can enjoy the movie as being one of the best pieces of, you know, uh, production that I've ever seen in my life. And I can still go back and read the book, like I did not too long ago, and enjoy it for what it is. But it's a totally different experience.
0: Can I ask you just a very simple question, Steve? Um, sure. You, so you and I have already talked at some length about, about the book. Um, and we've also both, in preparation for that other show, read it um, again recently. And, yep. uh, and I was struck by something as I was rereading it, which is that I was not picturing Harrison Ford as Deckard in my head when I was reading it. When you read the book oh. now, do you picture... Deckard as we know him or some other kind of abstraction of him? Uh,
2: there are – when I read it now, there are elements of of Harrison Ford in him. But the character of Deckard in the book is uh, – he's a very different character than what exists in the movie. And Harrison Ford exemplifies that character in the movie. He's been a tough, decisive um, – you know, an action man. Now, the character in the book is really not like that. He has lots of points of self-doubt. He's a bit of a procrastinator at times. Um, He does his job, but sometimes it's, um, his actions are not driven by being a tough man. You know, it's purely survival instinct and having to do his job. I, I see him as being, there are great weaknesses in the decade, in the book that just, you know, aren't even touched upon in the movie
0: right right yeah it's it's amazing how how different they are um so I wanted to uh I, I as you were talking, I was thinking, you know you the three the four of us have had a couple of conversations over the last couple of days about where some of these divergences come in terms of audience reception of the different cuts of the film and why certain ones are closer to us than other ones and something that I noticed in things you both have said is uh, it comes back to Deckard quite a bit, so I guess kind of to get going a little bit more specifically on um, this conversation about part two of this theatrical cut, Peter, um, why do you think Deckard as he's portrayed in the theatrical release of the film is the way that you think he should be? Or what about his portrayal? And that is more definitive to you if it is than the final cut, because, well, I guess actually, you know what, hang on, <laughs> hold that for one second. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you feel just very broadly about those two cuts of the film and which you prefer? And then let's jump into Deckard specifically.
3: Sure. Yeah, let, let's let's start there. And uh, let me just start with one point. I'll just say that, you know, in my, I think I've been on the show now, three. this could be my third time. So, you know, for the hat trick here, and I just wanted to point out, it's not fair that I keep getting, you know, paired up with people with these uh great accents Well, i'm sitting here with you know my uh, higher voice with a deviated septum from an injury i got when i was a young kid and i'm sitting here and you know so it's 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 always fun to be on with uh where i can just kind of sit back and listen to the other guests speak and i can continue to listen to them speak but
0: you have a beautiful we'll have voice have a too, my one, friend peter
3: have a better one. <laughs> So, okay. So here's, here's, and I think I touched on this uh, one other time when I was on for the Officer K, and I think it's no, you know, surprise or mistake that now you're asking me about Deckard as well. I think I'm typically, it may sound boring in this day and age, but I'm still sort of attracted to uh, the hero in movies. It's, it's something that I think great storytelling often does. It's something that just always you know, I, I'm a great believer in that we need our heroes in stories. It's, we need someone to either look up to or learn from, and it's just something that I always really enjoy. But I, I think the hero and also the actor of, of Harrison Ford both have really strong connections to me, to my childhood and and to my dad. Um, I think I mentioned before, my first viewing of Blade Runner, I think when I was very young, maybe – it's, it's, it's one of our first houses, so I could I had to have been younger than seven. But it was a movie where I was watching probably a VHS copy of it with my dad on the couch. It was probably way past my bedtime. And so all those sort of special boxes when you're a kid are being checked here for me. Up late, you know, watching something you're probably not supposed to watch. I'm sure my mom was working late. And, you know, I'm I'm watching a movie that she would have otherwise not really wanted me to watch.
1: Whatever was in the bathtub was not human. Replicants don't have scales.
3: Background to that as well is my dad's a very big you know old western fan Clint Eastwood um, spaghetti westerns lots of old detective movies so really when when this movie started for me and based on the theatrical cut it really was not a leap in storytelling for me at all and it felt very comfortable with the voiceover and we can get into, you know, the issues with that later. But for me, the, the film noir, the detective movie, it was all very familiar and it felt just, you know, now I feel almost warm, you know, thinking of it, you know, we're probably in, in in a cold basement or whatever. I don't remember when, but it just gives me this sort of warm feeling, just that entire genre. So although a lot of people I think in fandom don't think the film noir angle to it really works, that it shouldn't really be there. But for me, it was, it was what drew me in and made me feel comfortable in such like, just odd world and, and incredible world that it was. So for me, um, I think it's very hard to disassociate um, the theatrical cut um, with my with my dad and just that feeling as a kid, you know, everything just being great and you're up watching stuff you shouldn't be watching.
0: Do you think if you were to see it now for the first time, you would have the same feeling? Or do you think that your nostalgia is inextricably linked to that?
3: I think there's no way it's not linked. Um, But I still think, and and there was a lot of great points um, in your first episode on this that I agreed with and really loved. Um, And one of them that Dan didn't really get to talk about a lot, but there's so much great info, I think, um, to the first time viewer in those voiceovers and in just sort of, you know, the familiarity of the of the film noir. Um, I think there's just a lot of information in there that I still enjoy getting. And I think I mentioned to this in some of our other conversations, but for this show I rewatched The Theatrical Cut and loved every minute of it. And actually it was the first time I watched it with my wife. Um, we've been married for a very long time now and yet she's never really watched. Um, the full version of, of a theatrical version of Blade Runner before, and um, well, that you know, someone could edit in the record scratching there. But, <laughs> but for me, it was, it was such a fun experience. And you know, she's a very astute movie watcher, but also a very, I think, uh, non-assuming uh, movie watcher. In that, she doesn't really care what people think of her tastes. Um, but she, she always has a great taste in that. Um, what I found a lot in watching the theatrical cut, cut with her is whenever she would have a question come up and you could relate it to sort of you, know, you watching it maybe with Jude and you know, his question that you talked about last time. But every time she seemed to be at a point where she wanted to ask me a question, a voiceover would pop in and give oftentimes the information that she was going to ask about. And so regardless of the delivery of the actual writing of it, I think it does its job for those viewers who are coming in from an otherwise you know, foreign um, place of interest.
0: You know, there's a really good point in there that I want to bookmark for later, that um, most people, when they watch Blade Runner now for the first time, are seeing the final cut, I think, because that's what you get if you get it on iTunes, or that's what you get if you go to Walmart, or that's what you, most of the ways in which we get movies um, presented in the final cut, like kind of leading with the final cut and then having the theatrical as some sort of an extended, you know, feature or something like that. Um, they're not buying that five disc set that we all love, you know, like they're getting whatever is the default when you rent it or you buy it online. And, uh, and so it's interesting to hear that, Peter, because I think that that's probably, uh, getting something of like a more objective take on the relative qualities of the two versions because they don't have that, the whole passage of time, the whole relationship with different, parts of their lives wrapped up in the way they feel about the movies. That's, that's really interesting. Um, Steve, I want to kick it off to you again. What are your overarching thoughts before we get into, into specifics on the cuts of the film? And if there are other ones that we haven't talked about, you know, we're going to be unpacking on, on subsequent episodes. Um, like for example, the work print and like the white dragon edition and things like that. But if there's other things you want to talk about too, go ahead. But at least between those two cuts of the film, um, which do you prefer and, and why overarchingly?
2: These days, um, if I'm going to watch the movie, I will gravitate to the fu- the final cut almost always, unless I want to go back and check something um, in particular uh, about the the release cut or the work print or whatever. Um, and I would, I've got to say that from a filmmaker's point of view, I do prefer the final cut as uh, a better representation of what. Um, Ridley Scott really wanted to, to, to have happen, you know, the way the story unfolds. And let's be quite frank, there's not huge differences between the cuts um, in terms of the way the story unfolds. Um, there are some differences uh, he has chosen in the final cut to use some different shots in some scenes and give them a slightly different timing. Uh, but the overall presentation of the storyline uh, is very similar from, you know, version to version. Um, my one comment about, and I, I never thought about this until I saw the final cut, my one comment really about the theatrical cut is that it feels claustrophobic and, and cramped a little bit in its edit style. Um, and by that I mean there are some scenes... <sighs> Um, And because I work in the business, or maybe I see this slightly differently. But I look at the scene being played out in the theatrical version, and I can see a studio executive standing over the shoulder of the editor saying, oh, he said that line, let's just cut to the next close-up of him responding, and he's responded, and now let's cut to him walking out the door. There's no kind of allowance for timing and reaction and the subtle things that... Um, help, you know, bring a kind of uh, an emotional understanding to a story. I can. Some of those scenes really make me just shake a bit. Um, and when you see the the final cut, Ridley Scott has begun to put those timing pieces back in, uh, and suddenly the scenes have a different emotional stance to them. Ah, so the short answer. <laughs> Um, I grew up and watched, you know, I wore out two VHS copies, a couple of DVDs uh, of the theatrical cut before I got my five CD collection in 2007. Um, So I have a a soft spot in my heart for the theatrical release because it's the one I knew and had to work hard to come to love. But the real truth is I'd go back and watch the 2007 final cut if given the choice. And family photos? Replicants didn't
1: have families
2: either.
3: That's exactly sort of how I feel um, as well. I typically will, if I'm going to just relax for the night and watch Throw in 2019, it's going to be the final cut typically. Um, but, and I think it's important to note what I enjoy most about the final cut, and it's it's the travel it's the city exploration it's those extra minutes or time in the spinners it's the extra time in the scenery and just like you said it's those moments where you're allowed to sort of step out for a second breathe and let the movie sort of surround you and just take it all in um but it's also what i then miss sometimes and feel a longing for i think as well for the theatrical cut is sort of that claustrophobia bit um I noticed this last time in watching the theatrical version of it that it's sort of – because you're moving quicker, because you're spending less time in transit, um, most often with Deckard, certain scenes I think resonate or even have a little more punch because there's not so much time or you're not sort of dazed – are still looking out the window of the, of the spinner, I think would be one way to put it. Um, certain scenes could get a little more punch. Um, and just timing wise, um, the, the scene, you know the, the famous love scene, or if you want to put that in quotes, um, yeah. between Deckard and, and Rachel, I think it, it has a it seems inor- much longer in the theatrical cut. It, 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 it takes up much more time of the film, which is very odd. Because like you said, it, it, it seems to move faster, and everything seems to be hurried along and claustrophobic. But then all of a sudden, you have this full, very slow, very limited dialogue, very limited you know, physical action. Um, and then you just have this scene. And for me, I don't know if it was after you know, listening to the great discussions that this podcast has had on that scene – um, but for some reason, that scene really seemed like it was such a pivotal point, even more so in the theatrical cut, because of those faster cut, and the, because you spend less time, I think, in transit in the movie.
2: Yeah, I can see what you mean about that. Um, to me, the, the that particular scene in the theatrical cut, and you've got to remember that, it was the cut that we saw first off, well, I saw first off in 1982, which is a different time with different social acceptances and mores and all sorts of things. And when that scene came on, uh, it was kind of shocking to me. not uh, Because of the kind of um, the violence that that scene held, uh, it was not something I was expecting at all from Deckard, at all. Um, and uh, and the, the, the kind of implied violence in that really... Took my breath away the first time I saw it, and the second and probably the third time as well. Um, and I think what that scene is an interesting one. If you really look at that in the final cut, it is approached very differently than it is in um, the theatrical release. The shots are different, the timings are very much different. And I think, as far as I know, there's not a lot of difference in the actual length of that scene, but it feels different because of what's gone on immediately prior to it. In the final cut, it's not not as, what's the word? It's not as outright threateningly violent as it is in the theatrical cut, and that's because of what's gone on in the scene and the way it's been handled uh, in the final cut. Uh, that, you know, leading up to that particular where he slams the door shut and throws her against the wall. So for me, part of my personal reaction to that scene was driven by the h- historical context of it. In 1982, you know, th- showing that sort of thing on films, you didn't see it very often. I thought it was a very bold thing to show, you know, the kind of slightly violent or brutish side to to uh deckard and the relationship and as i say it was totally unexpected so it took my breath away a bit
1: it's interesting that you say uh to hear your perspective on that because for me deckard's an asshole of course this of course you know like it, it made total sense for me that even seeing the original and of course only watching the final cut mostly these days well solely except for i mean watching the theatrical cut recently for this these couple of episodes it just made sense to me that deckard was sort of he he sort of sees Rachel as other people see, like, sex robots. Of course I'm going to have sex with her, of course. Like, there's a replica in my house, and she's gorgeous. So I'm going to fuck her. Like, I, I totally, to me, it is congruous with Deckard's character. So it's an interesting perspective to have it draw you so much. I haven't heard that before.
2: Uh, okay. And I think that that derives from my reading the book for many years before the movie came along. Because my concept of Deckard, the character, was not one of being, uh, you know, kind of a violent, tough man bastard. That's, that's a, a, a play on it that I think Harrison Ford brings to the role. And I think totally. that as stems from him. And if you'd put someone else in there, they would have had a different play on the character. And uh, our reactions would be a little different. But for someone who's come in, you know, who, who um, saw the movie before they read the book, I can totally understand why you would think he is a total bastard and think that that would be quite normal for him.
3: See, it's interesting, too. And I don't I don't want to get too far into just this one issue. I mean, there's the whole you have uh, episode 25, which is just an amazing discussion about this scene Um but I've always been and I, I think I'm just trying to relate it then back to my first experience and again with the background of watching, you know, old detective movies again with my dad and you know, my dad would never in any way, even you know, at the time, condone this type of behavior and it wasn't normalized. Nothing like that. That's you know, we can take the two thousand nineteen today slant on it. But really the um and what hit me this time, even more so, I think in part because of that episode that you guys have had, and uh, I think a lot of what Dan said, um, I felt a great sadness this time. Um, it felt, you know, the movie moves along and it's very detective, it's very cert- out searching. And then there's this very intimate moment, and it's almost as if he has to, uh, and go, going along with that genre, teach her how to, and himself, you know, it's two people lost trying to show each other how to show affection. Um, so it's, it's never been very jarring. And I always sort of saw it as a as um, sort of teaching her how to act within that genre. And I know that genre isn't always seen in the best light as well. But it's just it's interesting to hear just all the different sides on that scene. And again, I think the theatrical cut pushes that scene out to the forefront more than the final cut.
0: Well, and and I think part of why, and Steve, you were talking about this a bit, but but I think part of why that scene is even more sort of thorny from a pacing standpoint in the theatrical release is because of what precedes and proceeds it. I feel like like we're being set up in a much faster paced film than the film we see in the final cut, where it's much more kind of expositional. It's much more linear, it's kind of going, it's chugging along, it's more procedural, it's more kind of like, Pete, like you were saying, like a, a film noir treatment. And then that scene stops, right? And in addition to the fact that it's a kind of a static moment that's very um, intense and prolonged, there are there is a little bit of additional footage in it. It's actually dilated a little bit further just from an editing standpoint. So it is something that has more the feel of something in the final cut, at least from an editing perspective in that it's longer and it's a little bit more drawn out. But it's in a more procedural environment, and so it really halts the pace of the film, and it feels wonky to me. It feels kind of janky. And I think um, because of that, we notice more uh, how—we we, we look for the violence more, and we look for how uncomfortable we feel more because we're kind of bathing in it, unfortunately, by the way the film is sort of edited around it. And um, I, something that we didn't really get into too much last time, and, and maybe later on we can get to it, um, is— the is is the the difference in the uh, actual like the the post production elements of the film, and one of them being the way it was edited. You know, Jamie and I um, talked quite a bit on, on the most recent Perfect Organism episode about how one of the brilliant qualities of Ridley Scott and Terry Rawlings' co- collaboration, which of course is the same people who you know did Blade Runner um, as did Alien, is that uh, they give so much space for things to breathe. Um, they, they set up a lot of environments and moments where we as an audience are expecting some sort of kinetic movement or we're, we're expecting action. We're expecting jarring things. And instead they give us stasis and they give us breathing room. And, um, and that to me is the way Ridley Scott actually, at least in his forties, when he was making these movies, that to me was, was his voice. And I think, um, when I'm watching the theatrical cut of the film, that voice feels stilted to me because I feel like it is a little bit too kowtowing to studio pressures and audience pressures based on feedback to the work print from the, the screenings. that didn't go great. Um, and I think in the final cut, we see that things have slowed down so much that we're given a much more accurate view of the actual poetic reality of what Scott and Rawlings wanted to happen originally. Um, so I just want to kind of throw that out there and have you guys think about it. Uh, but I, I guess this is actually kind of a good moment, if if you wouldn't mind. I do want to get to the voiceover, even though we have talked about it, because I think you both have interesting things to say about it, and because it is such a sticking point. And, and I, I think anytime there's a sticking point, we should think about why, right? Like the same reason why, although I don't want to argue about the Decker Rep stuff anymore, like I still will engage on why people care about that so much. I think that there, there are reasons why the voiceover is a sticking point for people, and I want to unpack that. But I also want to talk a little bit about the production differences in terms of what we see on the screen because the final cut, of course, was a digital remaster in addition to all the other things that went along with it, right? So the, you know, the director's cut, which preceded it by quite a bit, you know, 1992 is when that came out, um, had a lot of the same footage in it as the final cut. Not all the same, obviously, but, but quite a bit, but it was not, it didn't look the same on the screen. The fact that, that, uh, that Charles and Ridley, et cetera, put together this digital remaster, I think allowed us to see things. So like last time, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that, um, you can't see the wires holding the spinners up, which was nice, you know, um, and that, you know, the matte uh, backgrounds are better integrated. But there's also things like, um, the, the whole entire picture was brightened quite a bit. The contrast was changed. Uh, there's differences in the audio mix. There's, there's different, um, background chatter. There's more city speak injected. There's smoke that's been added digitally and otherwise. So, um, I want Steve, cause, cause you are, you know, Jamie's also a, a film professional. Um, but we've heard his perspective quite a bit on this stuff. Um, I, I'm curious, you as somebody who has worked with this for a long time and is in the industry, what are some of the technical differences that you notice when you're watching these different cuts of the film? Um, and what do you think works or doesn't work about the ways in which things were modified for the final cut?
2: Okay. Um, let, me, let me just put it this way. If you start and watch the work print off the five CD set and then work your way through chronologically, you know, into the two, the two um, theatrical release versions and then to the director's cut and on, the film is looking better at each iteration. And I guess that is partly down to the technical advances that were made over the periods of time um, for colour grading and digital transferring, um, which really took a big step in the late 80s and early 90s, just prior to when the director's cut came out. And the biggest step for me is between, now I've got to be careful here, Um, I watched most of the you know the th- theatrical versions off VHS tapes you know during the 80s and early 90s, and then went to um, uh, DVDs in the late 90s. So um, my kind of recollection of the theatrical cut is tainted a bit by that, by looking at it off shit quality VHSs um, that were never any good to start with. Um, and now here's an interesting kind of s- s- thing. Um, a couple of, uh, th- three or four weeks ago, I went back and watched the theatrical version again, but instead of going to my five DVD set, which is only DVD and not the Blu-ray set, I jumped online because finally the theatrical cut was available on Netflix and looked at it in high def on Netflix, and there was a huge difference Um Partly because they, I think that they had done some remastering on it, you know, for the Netflix release, but also because, you know, I was seeing it much more like it was originally shot. When I went to the movies, it was, you know, a, a bright. The, the contrast ratios are pretty good. They were darker than what the um uh, 2007 release is, um, and the contrast ratios were. Not as good, but that was partly because of the film stock that it was shot on and the fact that it was shot under very low light conditions. Um, that's why they used lots of rain and smoke and that sort of thing in the original one because that helps you your film exposure. Um, once they, When they got to the 2007 release and they had this big bucket of digital, you know, um, programs and things they could use to sharpen and enhance the movie... Uh, They threw everything at it. And uh, I've got to say that from my point of view, the visual richness of the director's cut is just brilliant. Uh, It still has mood. uh, It still has elements of that noir kind of thing that it was pursuing. But I can see things in the blacks now that I could never see before. Um, I'm finding myself much more sucked into the you know into the world because it is uh well it's much more like our eyes see i guess rather than the result of you know 1980s film technology
0: very good points there's also um from a, a production standpoint there are there are a lot of changes that, that were done um digitally mostly for like the sake of continuity so for example um obviously we have talked quite a bit this with joanna cassidy herself um you know her her face was was added back in digitally um, and so there's not that whole, you know, whether it was a stunt woman or not, it's not un- unclear what you're seeing. Um, you know, there are shadows from, It's like, for example, there's that famous part towards the end where, um, Cronoweth and Scott's shadows are on the back of the wall. Um, and like, so, th- so, uh, so Charles got rid of that. Um, and there's continuity fixes. Like, for example, Deckard, uh, had a cut after his fight with, Z- after his, uh, his pursuit of Zora that he was supposed to have gotten from Leon. That was now switched, so it happens. So it's removed when he confronts Leon, and then he gets it after that. And it's it's a lot of these little things that I, I think improve the film because they don't feel intrusive. On the last episode, we talked quite a lot about how this is um, compared to, for example, the um, what happened with Star Wars, and uh, and I think it's interesting how a lot of the the editing and the production advances over time um, were used a lot more you know, tastefully here, I guess, what are your thoughts? Maybe Peter will kick it off to you on filmmakers going back and revisiting things sort of in general. And where are some examples where you think it's been done well and maybe not quite so well?
3: Okay. First, let's start with in the Blade
0: Runner universe. And
3: I, and I think,
0: um,
3: it's so important and so wonderful that all those versions are available. And first of all, yeah, I'm with Patrick. Jamie, no one knew that you had all the uh, original Star Wars versions, so...
0: Yeah, where, where <laughs> are those, Jamie? I think was, I'm checking
3: oh, yeah, my yeah, mailbox, so bitch. Here for the first time online, <laughs> I mean, on air, so...
1: Despecialized edition, yo. <laughs> yeah. I've been yeah, out so there a cut, long time.
3: Those cuts run deep. Um, but, so, I, I think uh, taking it and keeping it to the actual the Blade Runner uh, universe, I think what's so important about all the versions and sort of Steve alluded to this is it's really fun with that five disc set to go through sort of in order, because I think what's so important that people continue uh, to forget about the theatrical cut is it really informs your experience with the other films. Um, Kind of taking the work cut out of there. um, There's things in the voiceover that just, you would have never known and they've become almost, you know, sort of sank or or to your experience that, you know, things like the reference in the voiceover to city speak,
1: speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. I didn't really need a translator. I knew the lingo every good. I
3: mean, if that had not been there. In the final cut, you'd simply there'd be fans indicating, "Hey, he's speaking this language. He's speaking that language." And you know, for all we know, someone could have labeled it gobbledygook, and then we're stuck with that as sort of a (laughs) a canon. But but luckily enough, I mean, I think the whole the city speak is such a wonderful label, and I'm glad it was in a sense forced upon us, and that we were sort of forced to just categorize it as that. Um, The skin job. Um, and it's comparison to the N-word. Um, I think with that voiceover, although it's, it's extremely clunky, it really sort of uh, ties you into just how offensive and hurtful and just n- incredibly painful that term is. And sort of everything behind it, all of a sudden you're given an entire history, at least of our nation, of what it could mean for a replicant to be called a skin job. And I think um, for fellow replicant sympathizers, um, um, thinking of viewers like Clara and the Evie and, and stuff like that, it's just to, to understand it in just such a, a finite term, it allows, again, it's forced upon us in the theatrical cut, but it expands and informs your then view and makes the final cut so much more, I guess, accessible. And you can enjoy those big moments of space because the little, some of those details have already been fed to you and given to you as, you know, an original layperson coming into the series that um, you can enjoy those other things. And I think the emotions hit. So if you were to just start with the final cut and I think not get some of that information, not be told city speak, not be told um, skin job, not to be told um, things like gaff being sort of new to the force, To the force. Yeah, to the police force um, and to the Blade Runner section. I mean, for me, uh, originally never really paying much mind to that voiceover. I always assumed Gaff was sort of um, somehow um, spiritually connected or somehow uh, supernaturally connected in a way to to things. You know, he sort of had a a somehow a different view just in the way he spoke. And, And I, as a kid, was just in awe of that character. Um, but I think you know, moving even forward to 2049, and Gaff's comments about Deckard show you that. And with that, then in conjunction with then the uh, the voiceover about his newness um, to the Force as a Blade Runner, I mean, it gives me a sense that you know, perhaps although Gaff kind of comes off odd in the movie and sort of at odds with Deckard. I think he was actually in awe, and I often see it to him as a young rookie um, trying to show Deckard around, trying to earn his keep. And actually, you know, he's in awe of Deckard. Deckard's sort of a legend to him. And I think without the voiceover, so much information that we take for granted wouldn't be out there, or it would be in a, it would have been provided to us in different ways that perhaps would have diluted it even further. So I really just enjoy it and. I've sort of lost track of where I can give other examples of films that have actually done a good job of changing things in future versions. But I've, I think the most important lesson here is, is that it's important to keep all the old versions because they inform the new ones.
1: I know we, some of the stuff I'm going to reiterate a bit just because we did, you know, we're going to kind of go back and forth between a prior episode, but, you know, I had seen the theatrical release as a teenager several times, and I remember thinking, well, this is interesting, I've said this before, I hadn't seen anything like it before, it definitely affected me, but I don't, it's not something that informs my reading or viewing of the final cut obviously we're all different and i know peter for you and definitely for you steve maybe it does but for me like having just recently seen the theatrical cut recently i thought you know i don't feel like it's that big of a departure the worst offender in the cut was uh deckard on the roof with with batty that was like okay that if that line went i would be fine with a theatrical cut um because there's still so many moments of the set pieces breathing, of the characters breathing, of that, that tension, that silence between Rachel and Deckard, all of that is still there. Like my my recollection of the theatrical cut, just because hearing so many people shit on it all the time, was like, oh, there's there's narration through everything. And I'm thinking, and I couldn't really remember everything. So I was thinking, okay, when Rachel comes to Deckard's house, is it full of narration? It really isn't. I think there's only like eight sections of voiceover or less and that's it out of a two-hour film um so i i really i i think that i've been giving the theatrical cut a, a bit of a hard time uh and it's been unwarranted because i don't think i have fully remembered it at the same time i also don't think like those things about skin job and maybe it's just because now we're informed by um Blade Runner 2049, and they use the term skin job, and you see it written on Kay's door and all of those things, and it's been impressed upon me. But I've been living with the director's cut and the final cut for so long that I feel like those experiences has eclipsed anything. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's been subconscious in terms of like decorative, you know, just knowing that gaff was new to the force knowing the tension maybe just because i knew it but it would be interesting to actually hear from someone who had never seen it to to get their opinion on what impressions they get from the theatrical cut so if anyone's listening if anyone's listening who who've never seen the theatrical cut who've only seen the final cut it'd be interesting to hear your feedback on how things sit with you with none of that narration in your life. So.
3: Once you've seen the final, it, you almost can't go back to the theatrical cut. Um, you can't sort of unknow that knowledge, and I, I think that's the thing. I think when you view the final version, if you everyone has the knowledge of the theatrical cut in it, either through fandom, through learning about it, through your guys's um, discussion groups, those terms—if you had only—if the—if the final version was your first time. I would propose that there are several things that you would not know. I I think things like, um, you know, Deckard shooting Zora in the back and then in the, the the dialogue or the uh, narration talking about, he's thinking about Rachel there. I think if you, I think several people would jump to that and say, you know, the reason they, they pause for a moment on him is he has to be thinking, Oh my God, this is what they could be doing. Or I could be asked to do to Rachel, but I don't know sometimes you with it's almost as if you are watching that because you already know it and i think i know in in part one you guys talked a lot about and it is it is jarring um when batty is on the roof and they don't give you much time at all and and then he died and it is i think in some sense terrible it's there's there's really no objective Apology I can do, no matter how much I want to be an apologist for the theatrical cut. Um, but I think the best way I could advocate for that still being something um, that informs you, that still provides some sort of value in that cut, is the fact that the language from coming from Deckard. And I think typically in a narration, you're assuming the character is looking back on events. I don't think that that narration is coming from a present tense Deckard. I don't know where or how, maybe, <laughs> uh, but he, he's obviously saying it as a looking back and, and telling someone. And, you know, you can fill in the blanks, especially now with 2049, where it could be along his journey between those movies that he's, he's informing someone of the, of the events of 2019, um, I think, which is sort of a fun exercise. But anyways, mm. to that actual um, line I think it's extremely important to the character that he says, and then he died. I think typically, if you have di- if you've died, you have lived. It's interesting he didn't say, and then he retired, or then he shut down. Then his f- computer functions were no longer operable. He, in that moment, shows that he believes Batty died. He was someone who had lived. And that's the way I've always looked at it, and you know it, it is jarring that it's so soon in the scene, and I think that's a pacing problem. but I think as a line, it's very important to the character of Deckard and how he understands Batty to have then lived.
0: I will give you that. I think that's actually that's that's actually probably uh completely accurate. And I think I don't know if it was a disconnect between Harrison Ford when he was reading it or if it was a disconnect in the way that they edited those those in. But um, the pace is what throws me off But also the performance is what throws me off Because he's saying it not like he was at all Emotionally impacted by it I think to me the disjuncture there Is tonal, right?
1: I don't know why he saved my life Maybe in those last moments He loved life more than he ever had before Not just his life anybody's life.
0: It's so disjunct to me. But on paper, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. But Peter, I, I want to say I love the idea that you just brought up that he's recounting this in in somewhere between the events of 2019 and 2049. To me, if I can get myself to think that now in my headcanon, I will fucking love the theatrical cut. I think that could be a great gateway because then... It is actually making it pertinent to the story and not just this aesthetic choice where they're kind of trying to like force this, this neo-noir thing into it.
3: Yeah, and if I could force this sort of fan fiction even further, I mean, it, almost in the way he delivers it. I mean, he's obviously not sitting with Rachel. He's no longer happy. Um, I think, uh, again, I think my that version came from viewings of 2049. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think... I, I can't make the argument for the theatrical cut that, that the film alone provides you maybe with that view. I think, again, what makes all these films so wonderful is that taken as a whole, I think you can start to to find other versions of it.
0: Right. But, I mean, what I like about it is that it, it offers up a way to reconcile the theatrical differences, you know, that like yeah. – now we can look at it not like it's just this sort of uh, weakness in the first film, but maybe it's actually from an expositional standpoint, an interesting new angle to it. Um, both of you, when we were talking about this show leading up to it, mentioned that you were uh, in some way sort of confused over why the voiceover is such a contentious issue. Um, and Steve, you had something to say about that. What, 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 how do you feel in general about the voiceover and, and why do you think it's kind of become a sticking point in fandom?
2: Well, I don't really know why it's become such an incredible sticking point because <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of agree with Jamie in, in a way in that um, I, I'm used to it because I've just heard it for so many years. But uh, when you look at it, it doesn't really – the voiceover doesn't really change the way that the storyline unfolds or the information is presented to the audience. Um, I, I – I, it's not a positive or a negative as far as I'm concerned. I can f- fully understand why it's there. Now, uh, if you look at look at the time that the movie was uh, released, uh, I've got to say, you know, with all due respect, I, the, the audience wasn't that v- kind of visually literate as compared, you know, compared to today's standards, of course. Um And not as well informed in terms of, you know, what makes a good movie work and all that sort of thing. And perhaps I'm being a little bit presumptuous here, but I believe that's probably true. So I can see from the studio, who, you know, from their point of view, would have said, we've spent a lot of money on this movie. We've got to make certain that as many people as we can possibly get come to it and enjoy it so we can get our money back. I can see why the Bean Counters would have insisted that mechanisms be found to make the story uh, simpler more palatable to an audience who wasn't you know that I mean were they just um, lazy or were they just sort of unsophisticated I'm not so sure but I can see why the studio wanted them in what wanted them there and I've got to say that In all honesty, if I was one of the studio guys back then, I would have asked for exactly the same thing because I want to get my money back. Is it the best way to push the story forward? No, probably not. And that's been proven. But I don't think it's such a huge issue that, you know, we should uh, take up clubs and go out and beat each other up about it.
0: This is actually a really interesting point because you were the only one of us who was, like, old enough at the time that the film was released to have any kind of real-time perspective on it. Like, it's easy for us to look back and um, make, you know, extrapolations based on the other films that we know were out at the time and, you know, the things that we love that were happening in popular culture in the 70s and 80s. But, um, you know, I mean, I I wasn't born yet. I, I know, uh, you know, and Jamie and, and um, Peter are both kind of in similar uh, age brackets to me. Do you think looking back that audiences were really in some way substantively different than they are now? And I'm saying this partly because I feel like audiences get really shit on a lot by studios who assume that we we need sequels to everything, and by general sort of criticisms that we have no attention span or that we have no appetite for, you know, creativity or something like that. But it seems to me, like I I agree with what you were saying, that audiences now actually are really well equipped. From a visual standpoint, and from um, an expectation standpoint, to make somewhat interesting judgments on the quality level of films that come in—maybe not like a general audience member, but members, you know, who go to films a lot and read about it—and our are, are fans—I feel like we're pretty well equipped. But as somebody who was a film-going, you know, teenager or whatever you were at the time this came out, what, what, was, what was it like, you know, being an audience member in 1982, going to movies?
2: Okay, I was about. 28 years old, so I wasn't quite a teenager. Oh, I wish I was. <laughs> well, you,
0: you look like you would have been a teenager at the time.
2: <laughs> that's very kind of you. Um, I agree with you 100%. I think these days audiences are much more knowledgeable about the presentation of, you know, visual information and drama, and that's that started kind of in the 80s with the advent of uh, VCR. People started to be able to look at things themselves at home and didn't have to go out into... Uh, movie land you know movie theaters and things or uh, put up with the mores of uh, the network television um, programmers and that has snowballed with the advent of the internet and now we can look at anything anywhere at any time and because there is so much input the audiences have become much more uh, equipped to take in information quickly, to assimilate it quickly, to be able to uh, reference that and use it to extrapolate what the next points are, if that makes any sense at all, so that they have the ability to take in much more information in a short time and make sense of it. Um, they're also much more aware of the different styles of filmmaking, the different, different ways that a story can be expressed to them or unfolded to them. You know, it doesn't all have to be extrapolation these days, whereas, you know, back quite a lot, you know, quite a few years ago, there was much more of that kind of presentation because the audiences just weren't experienced enough to be able to do it themselves. So as a preamble to how was it going into that film theatre for the first time, um, it was an amazing experience. Um, (sighs) Let's put it this way. The science fiction movies in kind of the 10 years prior to it coming out had had all been kind of, you know, what I call the shiny surface, glittery spaceship kind of feel about them, and that includes Star Wars. It wasn't all that, but um, they're optimistic. They're full of new machines and wonderful thoughts of the future and, you know, expansion. And then suddenly came Ridley Scott with Blade Runner, and it totally rewrote the kind of uh, appreciation, the, the, the direction that um, science fiction films took. It was kind of the precursor to, um, you know, the uh, apocalyptic type science fiction movies. And if you, it was just so different, the dark feel of it, the busyness of it, um, the underlit nature of it. Uh, and, and you've got to remember that um, the book goes uh, to great ex- extremes to kind of describe the social decay that surrounds, uh, uh, you know, this whole story going on. Um, and that's in the kibble is one of the you know ways that that is um, talked about in the book. Um, there's see that's, here's a the difference with the book again. In the book, it's desolate. There's not a lot of people left. Most people have moved off earth already and it's only those losers who are left on earth um in the movie when i first saw the movie my first gut feeling was holy moly there's too many people there is just all of this busyness these people on cycles and with umbrellas and uh, they're everywhere and that's not a feeling i got from the book so that was one of the things i had to come to grips with um you know with the visual treatment of the film and uh, of course the book sort of doesn't say anything about lots of Asian influence in the street life. And uh, that's sort, of, that sort of definitely a Ridley Scott, you know, bring in one that I think works very well. Um, but it took a little while for me to get come to grips with that. Mentally, it was a big bang in the side of the head because movies to a very large degree. And if you look at, you know, um, Star Wars movies and the um, Star Trek, both the series and the, and the movies that uh, had been out at that point, They're very simply presented stories. They're like cowboys, cowboy westerns, you know, but they've got flying spaceships in them. Blade Runner is a different thing altogether. It's not a movie like that. It's a movie about uh, mood and mental understanding and soul and deep questions of humanity. Uh, And so it was a bang in the side of the head because uh, uh, not many movies at that stage uh, approached you know those kind of questions of humanity, as deeply as it did.
1: Don't you think? Well, you, meaning you, all of you. I feel like the question about Blade Runner in terms of audiences back then. It's not a question of audiences. I think Blade Runner is very, very highbrow science fiction. Blade Runner wasn't 2001: A Space Odyssey, which was a watershed moment, a film no one, like, unlike anyone, had ever seen with with, you know, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but the effects, the story, I mean, it's like a Terrence Malick film in space um, before Terrence Malick. Um, it was something that no one had seen before. It was, it was just amazing. And then years go by and you have Star Wars and you have these other things that's kind of set the tone for space or science fiction. So when people hear science fiction, they think space. And then you get a film that's a science fiction film that's about our reality back then in 82 and essentially our reality now not looking so hot it's a downer people don't like downer films it's i I, and i think that's probably why um audiences reacted the way not that audiences were saying oh this is terrible they're just like oh man this is depressing and it is We've had you know 30 how many years now 37 years 37 years since the film has released to digest it regurgitate it digest it again talk about it go over it watch it watch the different versions that we can kind of see the hope in it but the film also came at a time where hope was scarce um sort of a similar time we're living right now um so I, i i never buy that it's not that anyone's saying this, but I don't think it's ever the audience. I think it's usually um, what people are sort of set up for. A lot of people go to films to escape, to have some fun, to be taken out of their circumstances. Where Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, they just kind of throw you right back in it like, no, you better you better deal with this. You better deal with this mirror because it's going to haunt you if you don't. Um, and that takes a very specific audience to, to do. However, Blade Runner 2049 made almost $100 million at the box office. So we're progressing a little bit.
0: I think something that I'm, I'm liking about this conversation that's new to this conversation for me is um, is kind of traveling back in time a little bit and looking at looking at this through a, a lens not of you know for, from my perspective, you know a 34 year old who was who you know was introduced to this movie uh, as like you know, a teenager at way after it came out but like going back kind of to to when where this came from and what the world was like and what the environment that it, it was released into was like peter you uh found a bunch of reviews that uh, i thought were really interesting we don't have to get into all of them but there were a couple that I, I think i would love for you to read and i think anybody who's read future noir which i'm assuming if you're listening to this you have paul Salmon's definitive book on this has a, a really great section about this Where it talks about how everybody, including, you know, Pauline Kyle or keel I don't know how to say that, uh, was just shitting on this thing left and right when it came out. And audiences, of course, were kind of indifferent to it as well. So I think uh, a nice little, at least somewhat objective lens, even though the materials themselves are subjective, into what the uh, feelings on this film were at the time were these reviews. So, uh, Peter, do you want to maybe, like, pick one or two of those and and read them to us?
1: One more kiss,
0: So th- these reviews that I'm
3: going to discuss, these are from um, a bibliography to retrofitting Blade Runner, um, a-, a book that's out. And uh, someone wrote uh, a W.M., I believe it's William Kolb, K-O-L-B, wrote a bibliography uh, for this book, which contained uh, a expansive, the most I've ever seen put together in one place, reviews from... Primarily 1982 um, of the film, and a lot of them are really interesting. There's there's some uh, reviewers that, of course, they're like, "What are we watching? This is terrible." Others, you know, go. F- they're all over the place. But here's one written by Bob Kurtwright, and it's from an article: "Futuristic Thriller Weighs the Value of Existence," from the Wichita Eagle Beacon on July 1st, 1982.
0: Wichita Eagle Beacon. I love (laughs) that. There you go, Mr. Cartwright. Mom and Pop newspaper. Yeah, Bob
3: Cartwright writes. The replicants are not inherently evil; rather, they are sympathetic as creatures who have no hope of heaven. Blade Runner is a morality tale Scott handles with sensitivity and subtlety, but also with scalpel sharpness. In an astonishingly touching moment that runs from indignation to anger to fear to acceptance, Rachel learns she is not human. She has a past and a memory, but only because she was given them. Agonizingly, she realizes she was never a child. Worse, with a lifespan of only four years, she is like Camille with only a short time to go. Under Scott's firm hand, Young, Sean Young is, of course, who he's referring to, never dips into maudlin but it's the spectacle of futuristic Los, A- Los Angeles underscored by the heart pounding music of Oscar winner Vangelis who will linger longest in the memory. So, you know, Bob and Wichita, I think got it.
0: <laughs> I think Bob and Wichita should come on shoulder yeah. of Orion. <laughs> if listening. I mean, that was,
3: that's one where I was just like, you know what? There are people that out there that got it. And, um, then, contrast that, uh, or compare that to um, a review written by Kathleen Carroll, uh, Blade Runner, and this was in the daily news new york june twenty fifth nineteen eighty two Miss Carroll writes frankly, it would take some sort of interpreter or recognized space expert to explain this garbled, hopelessly grim thriller. It's about the only thing that the only thing that's clear is that the hero played by a surprisingly listless Harrison Ford who is doing yet another half-hearted takeoff on Humphrey Bogart's world-weary Philip Moreau, is not happy in his work. In this depiction, the ultimate consumer society is bombarded by neon billboards and ads, among them a sign promoting Atari, the video game company that just happens to be owned by Warner Bros., who in turn just happens to be distributing Blade Runner. This blatant plug is about the most revealing thing that happens in Ridley Scott's murky movie. So obviously not a fan. Oh my God, <laughs> but the
2: advertising—the right. the advertising thing's interesting because three out of the four major advertisers that appear in the movie have gone broke right. in the <laughs> ensuing years. The only one that's left is Coca-Cola.
0: Yeah, clearly was not successful advertising. If that was the,
2: the no, I wouldn't think so.
0: Well, it's just funny so, that, that she says, uh, the like the first sentence, I believe, it, it says that it would take some sort of a space expert. The movie doesn't fucking take place in space. You know, it, it shows how closely <laughs> she was watching it. It takes place in Los Angeles. It's crazy.
3: Well, here's one, and this is one that I, I, I'd love. This will be the, the last one I'll read, and maybe, you know, you guys do a whole show on sort of the, the take at the time. But here's, here's the last one. I think this plays just perfectly into um, the great um, – Service that you guys are doing in the fan community with the seven layer seven layer cake and re reinterpretation review of of 2019. So here we go. This is from Donna Shernan whose article is titled "Blade Runner." Blade Runner is freaky but intriguing, and this is from the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, June 26, 1982. She writes. Although Blade Runner is captivating from a visual and clinical standpoint, it left me cold emotionally. Who should I root for? The replicants or the calculating humans who created them? Still, Blade Runner is the sort of picture that grows more fascinating after the fact upon reflection. It deserves points for ingenuity and painting a stark picture of a future world where science has spun out of control. But while it is intriguing, Blade Runner is so bizarre that you may just have to live in the year 2019 to be able to appreciate it fully.
1: And oh, here snap. we
3: are. We are We're living the life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the world's going to shit. The just, Environment's going the into the she, tech.
3: Yep. Yeah, I love the fact that she says it's the picture that grows more fascinating upon reflection. And that here we are in 2019 and you guys have a whole podcast dedicated to it. And, you know, we've got People from Australia. We've got all walks of life We just can't wait to talk about it. So that one, I really loved. I think I think Miss Shernan got it as well.
1: I think kind of as a as we move towards wrapping, um, like I really this keeps kind of playing in my mind on a on a loop. Like in terms of this discussion between theatrical and the other variations, work print sort of notwithstanding, because it was a work print and that's all it was. Um, I really feel like the theatrical cut and the final cut and the director cut really live harmoniously, but like you can watch any kind of those films and yeah, there are some gaping issues in the theatrical cut in terms of, you can see the wires in the spinner, some weird cuts here and there, but really I didn't notice those because the story is so gripping. And I feel like we can kind of come to this point where we can all, Not to say we need to all agree, because who wants to all agree that that's boring, but we can all kind of coexist and talk about these films and let them sort of exist together because they're really, the films aren't that different from each other. There's a few lines here and there, and that's it.
2: You're right. It's really just a matter of, visually, it's a matter of timing of scenes. To me, anyway, the, the biggest differences between the versions are the later versions are cut you know, by someone who knows what they're doing and isn't having to succumb to some kind of studio pressure to deliver a product, you know, of a certain length by a certain date.
0: And I think especially if you've, I mean, so I think we can all agree, although we haven't talked about it, we, we probably don't need to, that the ending in the theatrical release is bullshit. I think Wait, it, oh it, wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh no. Bringing it. the heat from the Midwest tonight. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, what do you, what do you so, think?
3: So here we go. Okay. So in every every form of advocacy instruction you always have to address your your weakest your weakest point your your worst argument so here it goes <laughs> the ending of the theatrical cut here's how i live with that and and how i still sort of view and love the theatrical cut despite its ending and then throughout those materials that i had written or had read i didn't write them um that i read um there's plenty of reviews talking about this what is this ending and here's here's something that i I just maybe will bring people comfort help them sleep at night (laughs) Um, here it is so in the end i think the biggest problem with the end of course is the scenery and we all know where the scene comes from, where it was shot and how it was added to the movie um, but the way I try to live with it is think about um, it more from a, from a fantasy point of view, from a fantastical point of view I mean, are we really to believe that literally in the film or visually that they really do get in first of all, they find a car um, a convertible um and that somehow they drive it. It still works, and that they drive into some sort of lush uh, landscape. I, I don't think that you can look at it in a literal sense. I think it's almost a fantastical view of I don't know inside Deckard's soul, inside what he's feeling, his emotions. I mean, the way I look at it, um, without even I think that kind of delays or even weakens it is, is trying to see where it fits. But I think. Looking at the ending as sort of just as fantastical as the final cuts inclusion of the unicorn scene. I mean, how how is it that we can all somehow justify um, sort of the the image of a unicorn running through the woods, and yet um, we don't and we take a more literal view of them deriving and being happy in a a lush dreamscape. I mean, obviously that's not what the world looks mm. like. It can't look yeah. like. It. But, but so I think I uh, almost uh, have to uh, look at it in that
2: sense. It's, go ahead, go ahead. I was about to say, but at least um, when you talk about how do we justify the unicorn, the uni- unicorn plays quite an integral part. Um, particularly, you know, when the when the film is edited properly, and we see, you know, that uh, the unicorn is kind of Gaff's uh, wave of, you know, hey, you guys are okay, go. So the, the putting the unicorn scene in works because it ties to that end scene near the elevator so strongly. The driving off into the forest is—I I get your point about it being a fantastic, a, a, a fantasy representation of you know what's going on in their uh, wished existence, perhaps. But they spent so much time and money uh, giving this f- film a kind of a feel a visual feel, and suddenly you get to the end scene and it's like it's out of a cartoon. I mean, it's Roger Rabbit. <laughs> it's just, it's, oh, God, there's no way you can justify that. Sure, if you want to give it a, a fantasy ending, do it, but don't do it like that. And the, there's one other bit about the theatrical release that, thank God, they fixed in the, um, the, the 2007 one that really got to me From the very first time I saw the movie, and it is the weakest thing and must have made Jordan Cronin worth, I don't know, lie awake wondering for many hours at night. And that is the the shot of the dove flying up into the sky. Thank God they fixed that in the, the 2007 release. It was the most jarring shot in the whole movie. And we all know why, you know, the history of it. But wow, I'm glad they fixed that.
0: You know, I I want to say one thing. Uh, you know, we don't have to harp on the on the unicorn scene because we are kind of wrapping. But I think something that is interesting is, you know, of course, it was included in the director's cut in '92, in a different version. And does anybody remember the most the, the most specific change in the final cut versus the 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 director's cut with the unicorn scene?
2: Oh, I think it, uh, they cut back to Ford a couple more times.
0: They do. And do you uh, remember what, that, what his eyes are doing? Oh, he's awake.
2: Like yes, he he's is. awake. that
0: is the that is the difference to me and that is scott making a very particular point because in the director's cut there's other things too like the you know the color grading is different and and it's lit it's the it looks a little bit more washed out in the director's cut but you know all that aside there is a very specific change which is that it cuts back to to deckard sitting laying there and he is awake during it he's not asleep dreaming this is in his head and he is seeing it this is something very particular. Now, of course Scott is is insinuating that this is because he's a replicant, but that doesn't matter cuz you know, the, this the vision of this film is more than just Scott's opinion of it. But that to me is a huge substantive poetic deviation. If that happened, so for example, in the ending of the film, if we had the washed out Volkswagen shining commercial and it was, uh, and, and we were watching it, and it were this sort of this beautiful scene of what could be, and it was this sort of dream sequence, which Peterie very eloquently laid out there, although I disagree with you about it, the interpretation of it. To <laughs> that me, is fine. To me, like, I, I feel like there would be something more to it, because here's the thing, Blade Runner is never operating on one level at one time. And that is why that's so jarring. It, I would argue it's not because it's so aesthetically deviant. Because, right, as, of course, as, as Steve is, you know better than anybody, in, in Dick's book, there are, you know, verdant scenes in the Pacific Northwest. There's plenty of forestry. Like, that, that exists within the universe, and I could see it being somewhat harmonious with it, but... Every other shot in Blade Runner, you can look at it, and depending on your subjective viewpoint, you will watch it a certain way that will probably probably be somewhat different from the way somebody else watches it, because of the inbuilt, ambivalent poetry in the way that the film is shot. There is so much going on, there is so much visual density, there is so much lighting, as we had somebody write in, and they, they called it... Um, tenebral the lighting was it's it almost feels like you're in some sort of sarcophagus it's so beautiful and it's so strange right and then you have this film this part of the film that's very washed out and it's very bright so there's that aesthetic thing going on too but it's also very one note it is just a happy ending and to me that is why it feels like what the fuck am i looking at i am looking at something that is exactly what i'm being shown the rest of the movie, what I'm looking at is not what's being shown. I'm looking at at myself looking at what I'm seeing. And that is the subjective beauty of Blade Runner, I think. And that's why the ending feels so disjunct to me.
3: Oh, I think you're in. Entirely correct. I'm just trying to I'm, tr- I'm trying to allow someone out there to still somehow enjoy <laughs> the theatrical cut with this ending. I mean, when I was a kid, I always assumed um, and a kid being, you know, from seven to 20 something. Um, I remember always believing that at some somehow that was um, a reference to Rachel's reference to to the north. Um, to where you know replicants, uh, we could we could travel up there and somehow, right, right. you know, this doesn't that doesn't make sense either because okay, so up in what Minnesota things are still great and sunny and <laughs> shiny and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I somehow it was, uh... that's, somehow it made sense to me, and again, I still like to think of it as a is there's no way that that could be that is not the actual ending. You are in the Blade Runner universe. And yet somehow there's a connection as to this is what could have been. Um, this is them being free in some way, but of course it's not true. And that's almost the tragedy mm-hmm. of it is this ending could never happen in the Blade Runner universe. There's, there's, there's no possible way both um, environmentally or, you know, physically there's just, you can't go
1: driving somewhere. So
3: it's ridiculous. I know, but Hey, I gave it a shot.
1: <laughs> well, the strange thing about it as we, come to a close like I it's just it just doesn't make any sense like if the <laughs> like they they just made, and we talked about this before you you set up this dark dim r- world that everything's gone to shit oh and then about a couple hundred miles outside of the city is all this forest and beautiful mountains like just it's like eviscerating everything so what's Jamie, the point you need to get what out of, of los the point? angeles
3: more a, <laughs> need to get on a road trip it's out there it's it's just it's all beautiful
1: true actually i lived close to the mountains patrick seen him he, he um,
0: jimmy lives in the fucking alpengeist out there
1: yeah it's awesome it's really it's beautiful awesome. um but yeah it's just it's just I, if they would have set up the ending as if it would have were a possibility and not the reality I would have bought a hook line and sinker, but they didn't. They oh. set it up like this is the end. Um and I again I go back to that that last scene in the final cut, which is really such a beautiful opening, yet it's a closing of that door. Um I just you can't get a more powerful ending than that.
0: You cannot end a movie better than the fucking elevator door close. Like that like how how would you do a better and, and Vengellus's music just ripping away. I mean, that is it's it's one of the great endings in Hollywood, I think. Uh, of course,
2: of course it is. Of course it is because it incredible. leaves it leaves everything up to your imagination and isn't right. that what we here for the theater right. of the mind isn't right. that part of it and by the end you know, our imaginations are would, so
0: stimulated you know
3: yeah and that's why I will ultimately concede um the final cut <laughs> is is <laughs> wonderful because just for that point it it leaves it there and I think Dan said it well um he's not here tonight so I'll, I'll, I'll I won't I, you know I can't uh, he's not here to be cross examined on his points but to to add credence to his prior parts in in part one of this episode what's so great about this entire thing is that we're all here talking about it because the final cut allows that space it allows this conversation and yes the, the theatrical cut is claustrophobic but it's okay to love it it's okay people
1: absolutely
0: I feel like there's something almost miraculous about the fact that a piece of art produced almost four decades ago by a group of people can still be affecting us in such a way that I am sitting here at 11 o'clock at night on a work night talking with people from all over the world about not even just one film but the way that this one film has changed our lives in so many ways and going back in time and looking at the ways it changed the lives of people saw it there, you know? Like, the the critics who were in the audience, the the audience who largely ignored it, but some of them didn't and some of them got it. Like, Peter, when you were reading that line um, from the Wichita Star Eagle, or whatever that was called, like, to me, like, that guy was a total kindred spirit to us. And that's somebody who I will probably never meet in my life. He might not even be alive, who knows, right? But I, I feel like I am vibrating on the same wavelength as that person. And I feel like, um... As an artist, like, a lot of the things that I do, I feel like I kind of put them out there and they go out into the world, and uh, and I don't know if they impact anybody, you know? But occasionally somebody will say, like, oh, I really enjoyed this, or, you know, can, can we play this again, or can can I get the music to this? And it, it means a lot to me, but I feel like a lot of the time, art is so insular, you know? You put things out there, and you put things out there, and you put things out there, and you hope someday a ripple can become something of a wave, and that, you know, you can, you can touch people, And I feel like it's amazing the tsunami of impact that happened when Ridley Scott and Hampton Fancher and David Peoples and and amazingly talented, you know, production staff got down and adapted Philip K. Dick's brilliant work to something that was so sublime and so strange that we are still fucking unpacking it late at night on a work night. And I could do this for hours more and I would love it. And I will because, you know what, we're about to hit 60 episodes or whatever. Um... And we're not even scratching the surface. There are still moments in this. Like, tonight, Peter, when you talked about the voiceover, looking at it differently, I have never thought about that before. I have seen these movies hundreds of times in my life. I have talked about them for thousands, like, actual, literal thousands of hours. And I am still uncovering things that I have never considered before. With people that I treasure on conversations that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, and so, you know what? Like, I'll wake up tomorrow tired and, uh, and a little bit dazed from being up late on a podcast and I wouldn't trade it for the fucking world and I feel so grateful right now that we have this connecting us all we are a community of people from all different you know uh, parts of the world all different backgrounds all different walks of life all different belief systems all different ages and we are united by this poetic connection to something so ineffable and strange and beautiful that it still beguiles us enough to the point where we can't stop talking about it and uh, I feel very grateful so if you guys want to share your final thoughts before we wrap, um, Steve, anything else you want to say that you feel like we haven't quite gotten to yet?
2: Uh, there's probably a million things we haven't got to yet, um, but that will have to wait for another day. Um, I think when people look at the whole you know, Blade Runner um, family of films, I guess you would call them, the, bit, the, the different versions, it's a testament to the strength of the, the story and of the filmmakers, that all of those versions can exist at one time together and we can all enjoy them for the various, you know, idiosyncratic nature that they all exhibit. Um, And we can all kind of agree to disagree about what we think is the most important um, uh, elements of each of those versions and how each of the versions contribute to the greater understanding of this Blade Runner universe. You see, it's a bit, I guess it's a bit like, you know, what Marvel did with their their movies. It wasn't just one movie became kind of, you know, an integrated universe. Well, in some ways, Blade Runner was the preceder to that. Uh, sure, it's different versions of the same movie, but, we, we have built a universe that surrounds that, um, and it's a strong universe. You know, lots of people contribute to it. You guys did with 2020 Gethsemane, um, and there is lots of other kind of fan fiction bits and pieces out there that contribute to it. But it is a work of incredibly strong, creative drive. And, I mean, sure, Scott was the director, but filmmaking is a whole bunch of really creative people contributing freely um, you know, to a, a common creative goal and they did it brilliantly.
3: Yeah. In in closing, I'm actually going to, I'm going to j- completely pivot to something else. Cause you guys aren't going to do it on your own. Um, <laughs> but could Jamie, could you, could you give the title of the audio drama just so I don't mispronounce it?
1: 2020 Gethsemane. And if anyone if anyone wants to know what the word Gethsemane means or is, Gethsemane is the garden in which Christ, um, in the Bible, sort of deliberated the decision to either go on the cross and be put to death or to any kind of was begging with God to not do it. So that's where that title comes from.
0: Awesome. Lest you feel bad for asking for pronunciation help, we had somebody audition for it who kept saying "Republicans" instead of "replicants." So you, you're 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 doing fine. Don't worry. Don't and worry they, about they,
1: were like, they were saying like Get "Gethsami." Get they were saying "Gethsami." They weren't even saying. It's funny.
3: <laughs> okay, say it one more time. Then say it one more time.
1: Gethsemane. Gethsemane.
3: Guess Gethsami. You guys, just I'm gonna speaking it as a whole as. Um, as we're taking all of the versions of Blade Runner together, how it, they all inform themselves. I just want to, you guys, because you're, again, you're not going to say this yourselves. Um, I just want to say it's, it's, it's an amazing, it's an auditory uh, uh, achievement. Um, listening to it, I listened to it probably three times in a row, the first listen. Um, I just want everyone to know who hasn't listened to it out there um, especially your listeners, especially the people who are posting in your guys's discussion forum. I think each one of us, we we can hear, we can feel, every one of us somehow included in that drama. I mean I got I got chills thinking about Evie and her discussions in episode eighteen. I got I, I heard bits of Micah in there regarding, you know, be small, be small. Again, I think that was from episode eighteen. You know, there's notes of Clara in there. There's notes of Ian and just so guys like just just thank you. Um, I think it's it's great writing, Jamie. I know you're always concerned with writing female characters, um, a, as a male, and and I just think the characters are are fantastic. It it adds to the entire lore. It doesn't seem like quote unquote fan fiction. So just everyone, if you haven't listened to it yet, you're all in it. Um, you can f- even hear maybe Dan in there somewhere. Find that Easter egg. Um. We're all in it. It's, it's it's a beautiful addition to the whole storyline. So thanks, guys. I just wanted to be sure to get that out there.
1: Well, thank you so much. We actually haven't had a, just an episode on Gethsemane yet, and uh, that's going to be coming up soon. But yes, thank you. We, I appreciate that. We appreciate that. That means a lot, man. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah,
3: no problem. Thanks, guys. This has been uh, just amazing. It's been awesome.
1: So unless, Patrick, you have any final words, I would say that that's a wrap. We'll probably – this series is going to be going on for a while. We have a lot of great things planned. We'll be getting a newsletter out for our patrons soon enough. Um, But we'll probably always sort of be touching back on things, kind of pivoting back to some discussions that we've had, getting a new – perspective on it getting a new point of view of it um but that will wrap this theatrical discussion um but we'll, we might come back to this as we discuss sort of the legacy of blade runner and how blade runner has affected every fucking science fiction film that's come out since its release so that'll be a a, a, a sort of a mini series for a later time but thank you guys thank you steve thank you peter you guys thank are you guys. amazing be sure to there tell so him much.
0: I'm fucking eating. <laughs> I'm fucking eating. Hey, before we go, before we go, before we go, before we go, just, we forgot to mention in the beginning, if you go to Blade dot you can get tickets right now to our event in November. And we are, they are selling kind of fast and we would love to see every, I don't care who you are or where you live listening to this episode. We would love to see you in November at this event. Um, there are different tiers for ticket prices. If you get them now, you can get them cheaper. And you will be able to meet some very important people who have, I mean, you know, actually <laughs> there are three guests have already been mentioned in this podcast. Joanna Cassidy, Paul Salmon, and Charles DeLazurica, who, you know, was co-responsible for the for the final cut of the film. They will all be there to talk to you, to answer your questions. We will be there. It will be in downtown Los Angeles across the street from a filming location for the, for the movie, right down the street from the Bradbury building. It is like uh, as as Blade Runner as it gets. And you can get your tickets right now at bladerunnerpodcast.com. And uh, and I can personally guarantee that I will stay up late and drink with you and talk about Blade Runner until the sun comes up, because there are very I few opportunities jealous. in life for that. So,
1: Oh, yeah. That's this tough. is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Yeah. Downtown LA. 2019. November 2019. Come on. Oh, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Let's do
2: it. I am so jealous of you guys. You could still we'll come.
1: See... I just got to. We'll, we'll, st- we'll see Steve there. Are you coming, <laughs> Peter? You better um,
3: fucking come. <laughs> yeah. Dan promised that I could <laughs> stay with him and he'll drive me there and that he was going to come pick me up in the Midwest <laughs> and then drive me out there. So <laughs> okay. thanks, Dan. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for coming on. You were both just yep. wonderful. This was thanks a great everybody.
2: conversation. Thanks, Pleasure. Everybody. Thank you for having me.
3: Love Bye. it. I could stay up Bye. all night doing this. All right.
1: Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com shoulder of orion is available for listen or download through apple itunes google play and TuneIn radio if you'd like to join in the discussion please join our official facebook discussion group fields of calantha a blade runner discussion group